Blog Talk Radio. It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering you to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway Pierce. Christmas and are off to an excellent new year. Thank you for joining me on the first Speedway show of 2012. We took a break last weekend so that we too could celebrate the new year. And uh, this is our brand new beginning for 2012. And uh, the Speedway show, if this is your first time listening, is an idea exchange empowering us to live well live fully, and love deeply by improving the quality of our personal, professional, and spiritual relationships. Today, we are just going to have a fun topic to kick off the year, and it is 11 in 2011, a look back at 11 significant events that shaped 2011. If something significant happened in your life, Feel free to hop on to the website, thespeedwayshow.com, for this episode and post your comments to share with us. So let us begin with the first significant event of 2011 that helped shape last year. It began, the year did, on a, I thought, rather sour note with the assassination attempt on Congresswoman Gabrielle Gifford's life. For those of you who are outside the U.S., she is a Democratic member of the United States House of Representatives, representing Arizona's 8th Congressional District. She is only the third woman to be elected to the United States Congress in the history of the state of Arizona. Now, those of you who live in the U.S., You remember what happened. In this assassination attempt, she was shot in the head at point-blank range outside a supermarket where she was missing meeting with her constituents. In addition to Ms. Giffords, the gunman killed six people and injured another 13. I say that because one of the things that I was a little bit struck by after this event was the fact that, you know, we we focused and the news focused a great deal on Ms. Giffords as well as a judge who was also shot. He was one of the victims who was shot in the incident. But I didn't hear a whole heck of a lot about the other people who were injured and the other people who were killed. And um, it just so happened that Ms. Gifford was the most prominent of the victims, but I think it's fair to say that our hearts go out and must go out to all of the people who were victims in this horrible incident. So speaking of uh, Ms. Gifford, the reports told us that she was shot on the left side of the head 
which impacted the part of the brain that controls speech and communication. But the good news was, in the months following the attack, her recovery was nothing short of amazing. And less than six months later, she could sing some of her favorite songs and she could speak. By now, she has recovered some of her ability to walk and read and write. And her recovery continues. And what about that suspected shooter? His name is Jared B. Loughner. And the interesting thing about him is he was only 22. A judge found that he was incompetent to stand trial. Do you remember this? I have to say, I remember looking at his photo on the news and thinking, well, he does look a little crazy. And uh, because he had the smirk on his face and maybe it was the way the photo was shot, but he did look like he was the kind of guy you would not want to meet in a dark alley at night. So he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and locked up at a facility in Missouri while the law, uh, the lawyers fought back and forth over his competency and treatment. And I did research this case just recently, and it seems that uh, the fight continues over his competency and treatment. Some people say that the wheels of justice turn slowly, and in this case, I'm thinking that that would be true. Moving on to our next significant event of 2011, January also saw the beginning of an interesting movement across some parts of the world that changed history. It all began with the president of Tunisia, His name was, I don't know if I'm going to say his name correctly, but it's something like Zin El Abedin Ben Ali. Where is Tunisia, you ask? Well, it is in North Africa, northwest of Egypt. Ben Ali had been Tunisia's dictator for over 24 years by the time he left power. His departure was triggered by a month of violent protests, which led him to flee to Saudi Arabia with his wife, Leila Ben Ali, and their three children. But that was not enough. The interim Tunisian government had Ben Ali charged with money laundering and drug trafficking and asked Interpol to issue an international arrest warrant. In absentia, Ben Ali and Leila were sentenced to 35 years in prison on June the 20th, 2011. I thought that was interesting because in the United States, you would not be convicted in absentia. You have the right to confront your accusers. You have the right to defend yourself. Now, some people in the U.S. tend to take issue with these constitutional rights, especially when the defendant is somebody they don't like or when the defendant is somebody that they feel is guilty anyway. So why are we going through the charade of a trial and why are we bothering to worry about this individual's rights? Because after all, they did whatever it was we think they did. 
Well, apparently in Tunisia, they are not shackled by any such issues. They're not shackled by any such concerns because they went right ahead and um, convicted this man and sentenced him to boot, and he was never there. He never actually showed up. So that was interesting. And um, as I said, this was the beginning of a movie of a movement across some parts of the world that changed history, because Ben Ali's fall was then followed by unrest in other countries in the region, and uh, these included Algeria, Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, Kuwait, Libya, Morocco, and Oman. Lots of countries, and we watched all of this unfold in, I think, quite deep fascination because this is the first time in the, well, certainly in this century and and perhaps in the history of the world as we've known it, that we have seen these wide-scale riots and protests over dictatorial leadership across the world. And so they, this particular case, the case of Tunisia, will not be the only one that we are going to talk about today. But we're going to take a break, and we are going to listen to a clip. Take a listen. Every man or woman must be their own sales force of their personal services. The quality and the quantity of service rendered and the spirit in which it is rendered determine the price and the duration of employment. To market your personal services effectively, which means a permanent market at a satisfactory price under pleasant conditions, you must adopt and follow the QQS formula. QQS means that quality plus quantity plus the proper spirit of cooperation equals perfect salesmanship of service. Remember the QQS formula, but do more. Apply it as a habit. Analyze the formula to make sure you understand exactly what it means. Quality of service means the performance of every detail in connection with your position in the most efficient manner possible with the object of greater efficiency always in mind. Quantity of service means the habit of rendering all the service of which you are capable at all times with the purpose of increasing the amount of service rendered as you develop greater skill through practice and experience. Emphasis is again placed on the word habit. Spirit of service means the habit of agreeable, harmonious conduct, which will induce cooperation from associates and fellow employees. Adequate quality and adequate quantity of service is not sufficient to maintain a permanent market for your services. The spirit in which you deliver service is a strong determining factor in connection with both the price you receive and the duration of your employment. Andrew Carnegie stressed this point in his description of the factors that lead to success in the marketing of personal services. He emphasized again and again the necessity for harmonious conduct. He stressed the fact that he would not retain any man, no matter how great a quantity or how efficient the quality of his work, unless he worked in a spirit of harmony. That was a clip from Think and Grow Rich, the best-selling book by Napoleon Hill, which has been uh, 
published and republished and printed and reprinted time and time again. The reason that particular clip struck me as being so interesting is because you can apply it to any aspect of professional life that you can think of. Many of us, when we hear clips like that, we are thinking about the corporate environment, right? And we're thinking about aspects such as sales or sales force, which is what uh, he happens to mention at the beginning of that clip. But actually, when you think about it, those fundamental principles apply to every aspect of our professional lives. And actually, I would say they apply to the success of your personal relationships as well. The great importance of harmony. Let us think for a moment about how well all of the dictators who fell this year did at leading in a manner that promoted harmony. Clearly not. Because what you had was you had a number of people in these countries who did quite well. And they were the supporters of these leaders. And then you had the majority of the people in these countries who did poorly. And they felt disenfranchised. They felt excluded. They were unable to obtain employment, gainful employment. And they were really assaulted and insulted by the lack of fairness and the lack of inclusion in these societies. And this is what led to a great deal of the unrest. And at the end of it all, regardless of which leader you look at, you can pretty squarely attribute the failures that they had as individual leaders to their inability to lead in a manner that was fair, to lead in a manner that promoted harmony and to lead in a manner that focused and emphasized their responsibility to be a service to their people. So speaking of that, we have our next candidate, our next leader who didn't do such a hot job this past year. And this takes us to February the 11th. On that day, the former Egyptian president of 30 years, Hosni Mubarak, was forced to step down from power in the face of widespread riots and unrest in his country. Muhammad Hosni Saeed Mubarak assumed power in 1981 following the, well, I guess it was suspicious, it was an assassination the assassination of Egypt's then third president, Anwar Sadat. An interesting thing, since now, 30 years later, military prosecutors announced that they were investigating Mubarak's role in Sadat's assassination. Mubarak's departure came after 18 days of demonstrations during what has come to be called the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. Authority was then transferred to the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. On April 13th, 
Mubarak and both his sons were detained for 15 days of questioning about allegations of corruption and abuse of power. After that, he was brought to trial on allegations of the premeditated murder of peaceful protesters during the revolution. Boy, he was a busy dude, wasn't he? Officially, the trials began on August the 3rd, 2011. And the thing that struck me the most about those trials was, and you might remember this if you saw the footage, but do you remember the images from the trials where Mubarak appeared in court in a cage? When I saw that, I thought, my gosh, in a cage he was. Um, you know, it, 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 it takes me back to a show I did on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 last year. I did a show called Why Me, Lord, which you can still access from thespeewayshow.com by going back to the show for that date or looking in the episode link on the top navigation in the problems category. One of the things I talked about on that show was the fact that whether you see it in your life or not, there is a counterbalance and consequence for misbehavior. If you follow the fates of historical icons of evil like Hitler and Stalin, you see how wretched their endings were. And when I saw Mubarak in that cage, I was reminded that all of us live in a world where balance ultimately comes for all of us. Years ago, my father was the Zimbabwean ambassador to Egypt, and I remember seeing a very regal photo taken of my parents standing next to the then-president, Mubarak, and his wife. And I certainly bet that when he was sitting on the presidential throne, Mubarak would have never believed that he would be in this incredibly humiliating and wretched situation in a trial in a cage. Once again, I thought to myself, my goodness, see how different the justice systems of the world are. We would never see that in the United States. Somebody might appear in court in shackles and a jailhouse uniform, but you would never see somebody show up in the United States court system in a cage. So go figure. Those of us who have these kinds of freedoms not to be caged uh, probably ought to be reasonably grateful because life could always be worse. So moving right along. This takes us a month forward to March the 11th, and now we're going to switch from uh, bad dictators to weather conditions. In March 2011, the Tohoku earthquake showed up. This earthquake clocked in in at 9.0 on the Richter scale, and rocked the east coast of Japan. I think we all heard about this earthquake. It was the worst in Japan's history and one of the five most powerful earthquakes in the world since 1900 when modern record-keeping began. On top of that, you will remember that this earthquake triggered a powerful set of series of tsunami waves, some of which got as high as 130 
three feet or 40.5 meters for those of you who are on the metric system. The earthquake was so bad that it moved one of the cities, Honshu, eight feet east, and it is estimated to have shifted the earth four to ten inches on its axis. Hello. Is that an earthquake or is that an earthquake? No, I think that is an earthquake. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the tsunami caused a number of nuclear accidents and a lot of focus was on the meltdowns at three reactors at the Fukushima nuclear plant complex, which caused the evacuation of hundreds of thousands of residents. You remember that they kept sending in people to go and check the radiation levels. And the thing I wondered about those folks is, gee, um, so what if there is radiation and what if it is dangerous? Who would be volunteering to go and check? I certainly wouldn't be interested in going, but hey, some people are brave. While we are on the topic of weather, 2011 saw some really disturbing weather conditions. In fact, By June in the U.S. alone, we had had eight weather-related disasters that caused more than $1 billion in damage, billion with a B. That's right, folks. April brought tornadoes that wreaked havoc in the Midwest United States, including one that killed 151 people in Joplin, Missouri. We saw those pictures on the news for days. In the meantime, Droughts scorched large parts of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. All of the disasters in 2011 led the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, interestingly called NOAA, to declare it one of the most extreme weather years in history. That was not a good one. Moving right along, on March the 19th, NATO launched airstrikes on Libya to impose a no-fly zone under a U.N. Security Council resolution. Gas prices spiked 20%. That's what some of us remember the most. NATO ignited what then turned out to be a civil war that was led by rebels. Before that, Muammar Gaddafi had held power as the ruler of Libya for 41 years, making him the fourth longest-serving non-royal leader since 1900, as well as the longest-serving Arab leader. Interesting, interesting stuff. He liked to call himself the brother leader and the guide of the revolution. Well, all these interesting names, so much for the titles, because despite his wealth and power, on October 20th, Gaddafi was killed in a very unceremonious way, and some of you got to see it if you were paying attention. The footage was on television, and uh, the rebels had stormed his hometown and taken over, and um, he was caught, and he was his clothes were ripped off him, and he was killed. Very unceremoniously, quite, you know, in in just the most humiliating way. And uh, I remember being fascinated because the United States government was so hesitant 
to confirm that it was him, that even after the video where all of us are going, is that Gaddafi? Yep, that looks like him. Does he look like he's dead? Yep, that looks like he's dead. Even then for a while, the um, U.S. government not having had a chance to confirm the death kept saying, well, you know, if that really was him, then, you know, um, this is not such a bad thing. So moving right along from there, we go to May the 1st. Two completely opposite events occurred on May Day. May the 1st, on the one hand, Pope John Paul was beatified, moving him closer to sainthood. And in a perhaps completely bizarre coincidence, that also happened to be the same day on which Osama bin Laden was killed. So let's start with the fun stuff. Let's start with Pope John Paul II. Did you wonder what that meant that he was beatified? If you're Catholic, you might have already known the answer, but I'm not Catholic. So I did wonder, and I had to look it up. Beatification is the declaration by the Pope, the sitting Pope, that a dead person is in a state of bliss, constituting a step towards canonization or becoming a saint. In this process, the Catholic Church recognizes the entrance of a dead person into heaven and that person's capacity to intercede on behalf of people who pray in his or her name. So now, in addition to all the other Catholic saints, in addition to Mother Mary, you can also pray, apparently, if you're Catholic, to Pope John Paul II to intercede on your behalf with the great God Jehovah. Beatification is apparently the third of four steps in the canonization process. And a person who is beatified is given the title blessed. So what we know is that Pope John Paul II is now blessed posthumously. As I said, it so happened that Osama bin Laden was killed on that same day. A small group of American soldiers conducted a targeted operation and entered his compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, where bin Laden was staying. And this was a um, targeted operation. They got him. President Obama called it the most significant achievement to date at the time in the fight against al-Qaeda. Then you remember what happened after he was killed, right? Questions started surfacing about how it was that he was living in really not such a complicated hiding place, in Pakistan, in fact, he was sort of in, you know, kind of almost in the center of town, in plain sight, in a relatively nice home. And uh, how how was it that he was there, and why is it that the Pakistanis, who were supposed to be friends of the United States, had evidently or apparently uh, accommodated him in that way? So the U.S. then threatens and does withhold certain military aid to Pakistan, which in turn threatens to end uh, its cooperation in the war on terror. What a mess. And it led me to think of a uh, clip that I played during the uh, Why Me Lord show 
last year, and I'm going to play it for you because I find it quite amusing. And um, it might, uh, you might remember the song, and it might add a little levity to our discussion today. I used to remember God in your everyday doing, not just when it gets bad. You know what it is. Shock it! Early Sunday morning in the spring of 96, I'm chilling on my couch watching the bulls against the nicks. My honey marches in and asks me if I think I'm sick. He seems to buy my shirt with lipstick. I thought I could explain, but then my story wouldn't fit. In craving age and fish, they showed me with some other chick. It happened once before when she was tired of the trick. She asked me, can I spell the word of it? Why me, Lord? This direction was looking kind of bad. Why me, Lord? I was the best girl I ever had. Why me, Lord? I'm only fine, I'm feeling kind of bad. Why me, why me, why me, why me, why me, why me, Lord? You know, my mother got the why me alone? that was kind of a funny song at the time that I heard it, and I always think it's a funny song because it is so typical of how people think Be in this way. You, you hear the story that he tells, right? So the story that he told was he is sitting at home one day, chilling out on the couch, having a good day, watching the Bulls against the Knicks when his girlfriend marches in. And she's mad because she found lipstick on his shirt, which I have no doubt she was washing or cleaning on his behalf. And she's ticked off and annoyed. He tries to make good of it. Cannot. Why? Because he's done this before. And she's not having any of it. So then she decides she's going to kick him out. And uh, so now he is homeless and he's feeling kind of sad because evidently this was the best girl he ever had, and he's feeling a little blue. Now, instead of taking responsibility, what does he say? Why me, Lord? And it cracks me up because this is, you know, I love this song, um, but I also love it because of the words. Isn't this how we behave? We get into trouble entirely because of our own making, and then we sit and we look, up at God and we look up at other people and we blame, blame, blame and we point, point, point and we say, why me? And I have to believe that for these dictators on more than one occasion, some of them probably had to ask that question. Why me, Lord? And uh, I'm thinking, well, you know, if you've been in power for 41 years, if you've been in power for 20 years and you have maintained this iron grip, and you have ruled by brute force and intimidation and um, corruption, 
There is really no why me. That is a legitimate question. Is it? Because people will only take that for so long. So that was our clip for uh, our second. Uh, that was our second clip for today. Now we move along to October fifth. October fifth was a sad day because. That was the day that the co-founder of the computer retailer Apple Inc., Steve Jobs, died, and he was only 56. He lost a battle to, I think it was prostate cancer. Now I'm going by memory, but I think that was the uh, nature of his cancer. Thousands of people flocked to the web and to social media to express our condolences. Between 1996 and August 2011, Jobs was Apple's CEO, promoting such innovations as the iPhone and the iPad. He played an instrumental role in the incorporation of the Walt Disney Company, Pixar. Those of you who have kids are undoubtedly familiar with Pixar. And uh, this made him Disney's largest single shareholder. He is listed as inventor or co-inventor on 338 patents for electronics and computer technology devices. You want to talk about a wizard. Oh, my goodness, wasn't he amazing? And I have to admit that when I heard about his death that morning that it was reported, I paused and I got teary-eyed and I even cried. I have never owned a Mac computer, although... I have a friend of mine who is pushing me quite enthusiastically in that direction, and I'm looking at the Macs, and I'm thinking, you know, that is a pretty nice-looking computer. Wow, look at that screen. That looks pretty impressive. Wow, and I can do what with it? Um, But I've never owned one. And I also do not own an iPhone. When I was all ready to buy an iPad, the helpful guy at the Apple store told me that while it was great for surfing, if my primary purpose for it was word processing, which it was, that I should get a computer because at least at that time, I could surf the web on an iPad, I could read books, I could listen to music, and use all the cool apps, but iPads were not designed for word processing. The first Apple product that I owned was an iPod that a friend of mine gave me rather begrudgingly after a physical altercation uh, in which I was tossed to the floor. But um, he gave it to me as a gift, theoretically, because he had received it as a thank you gift for doing a presentation, and he wasn't even going to use it. Well, I fell in love with the versatility and the flexibility with which I could organize my music. After that iPod broke down, I had purchased another iPod Classic and um, bought them as gifts, bought little the little ones as well, as gifts to both my daughters and my mama and my sister. Uh, it took my mother about two years to finally get around to using hers at which point, by by then, she had fallen in love with it. And by the next time I saw her, she was ready for more music. So I gave her my, I think at the time it was 130-gig classic, and used that as an excuse to buy myself an iPod Touch. Now, what made me cry when I heard about Steve Jobs wasn't the fact that I knew him personally, which I did not. 
but it was really the recognition that his death marked what could be the end of such a significant era of innovation and creativity that truly changed the world. In his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, Clayton Christensen distinguishes between what he calls sustaining innovation and destructive innovation. Sustaining innovation is innovation which incrementally improves the performance of existing technologies and processes. Destructive innovation, on the other hand, is innovation that completely changes the way that people live or engage in a particular way. In other words, it really destroys the old paradigms and the old ways that we used to do stuff. The Internet is a prime example of destructive innovation because it completely changed the way we live. It changed the way we communicate, the way we obtain and seek information, the way we function, the way we purchase, the way we do commerce, the way we interact with each other, the way we read. I mean, it changed everything. Likewise, the you could also say, actually, associated with that, the personal computer was destructive innovation because now, you know, most of us, many of us have computers. My kids have computers. And before that, uh, computers were only something that was really familiar at the enterprise level. So personal computers have completely changed the way that we live. Likewise, the iPod is an example of destructive innovation because it destroyed the old way of engaging with music and completely revolutionized the way that we access, organize, and listen and carry our music. Never before could you take your music vehicle and put headphones on it and go work out and then take off the headphones and plug it into a jack in your car and drive around with it and then come into your house and plug it into a speaker and listen to your music that way. Um, the iPod also revolutionized the way cars are manufactured because not too long ago, cars didn't even have an MP3 jack, and now they do. But here's the thought to remember about Steve Jobs and all those highly successful and wealthy men and women like him. Guess how much money he left behind? Guess. Want to guess? The answer is, and I bet you're not going to get this one, he left all of it. According to Forbes magazine, this man had a net worth of $7 billion. And he actually got it the legitimate way. I imagine you have to run out of things to buy by the time you amass that kind of wealth. And you have to find meaning in other things like the contribution you make to society and that sort of thing. I can only imagine that Mr. Jobs had to feel good about the contribution he made to society and the significant changes he made to the way we live. We will never forget because our lives have been forever changed. But at the end of the day, when life ends, we leave all of our material things behind. So consider this. 
you're going to spend a lot longer dead than alive. So how then do you invest the short time you have on this earth in order to make a difference to where you will be for the rest of your eternal existence? We each have to answer this question for ourselves. And if you haven't already considered this question at the beginning of the year, when so many of us are reassessing our lives and deciding what we'll do differently, decide that you will tend to your spirituality. One of my suggestions, of course, would be to check back for shows that we have on the Spiway Show coming up this year. We're going to talk about a variety of different topics and different issues. We have... um, Issues around intimacy that are coming up. We've got a show that uh, parents you can share with your teenagers for um, uh, where we deal with the question of intimacy and uh, you know why wait for sex if you are a teen or a young adult. And uh, we're going to deal with issues around really digging into your professional and personal success. And uh, we're going to deal with other issues involving spirituality that you're going to want to check into because um, there's a lot to talk about. Moving right along, and oh, by the way, interestingly, uh, you may not know this, but um, Steve Jobs had a copy of a book called Autobiography of a Yogi, which was written by Paramahansa Yogananda, who founded an organization called the Self-Realization Fellowship in 1921, headquartered in Los Angeles, California. And the purpose of this organization was to disseminate a form of yoga called Kriya Yoga, which was purposed to help you attain a closer relationship to God. I found it incredibly interesting that he read this book, and apparently he read it on more than one occasion. And if I am going by memory, because I read this back when uh, he passed away, as the stories about him came out but apparently this was one of the very few books that he actually had on his um, iPad. Interesting, interesting. So I would say that clearly he was concerned about his spirituality, although I've never heard him speak of it, but it was just an interesting thing to know. Moving right along, back to our leaders who misbehaved and got their comeuppance in 2011, so many of them. On November the 23rd, Yemeni President Ali Abdullah Saleh signed a power transfer deal under which he agreed to step down after 33 years in power. He was yet another in a string of dictators who lost power last year. His downfall came after the revolution in Tunisia. You remember that started it. And um, which, of course, resulted in that president being overthrown, as we talked about earlier. And I remember laughing about this particular case in Yemen because the unrest began early in 2011. And this president's first solution back in February was to announce that he would not seek re-election in 2013. And I thought to myself, 2013? Seriously? Are the people of Yemen going to go for that? Two or more years when they want him out right now. Well, evidently the answer was no. The Yemeni people were not going to go for that. And in March, 
in protest over the violence of the government's response to the riots, 13 of his cabinet ministers resigned. Well, Saleh didn't really appreciate that, and so he fired the entire cabinet, only asking them to stay on as a caretaker cabinet until he could form a new government. He also told his people that civil war would result if they tried to overthrow him. He really did try to hold on to power, didn't he? But the demonstrations continued, and he evidently had to give it up because um, that really didn't work. Oh, wow. So here's the interesting thing. Where is this man going to live? Did you know, and this was reported uh, in December of last year, so the answer is still not clear yet, but did you know that this former president of Yemen owned over 10 properties in the United States with a total value of more than $500 million? And according to the, new, the, the now Morocco blog, these properties included a lavish apartment in New York City, and I think it was on the, on the 50th floor of you know, some really nice building, and they also included a $30 million mansion in Beverly Hills. He owned other properties in other countries in the world, and during his 33-year reign, he had managed to compile for himself a fortune of 10 to $15 billion. Hmm. What a surprise that a dictator should amass that kind of wealth. Go figure. This takes us then to December. On December 17th, the supreme leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, who led his 24 million people with absolute power for 17 years, died of a heart attack at age 69. I call him North Korea's supreme leader because that was his official title. It was given to him as a result of a, get this, a constitutional amendment that conferred that title to him. He was also referred to as the, uh, I quote, dear leader, our father, the general, and the generalissimo. Is that a demonstration of supreme ego when you get your people to refer to you with titles like that? I thought so. I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. Well, this one was also an interesting event for me because I remember getting up and getting to uh, getting ready for work on the morning that his death was announced, and I was absolutely fascinated because his people cried. There were people. I remember there was a shot of people coming off of the out of a subway station. And they're pouring out of the subway station, and they are weeping. I mean, they weren't just crying like, you know, civilized crying. They were crying like, yo, in my way. They were shrieking. They were shouting. They were distraught. They were covering their faces. This was so horrible. And the tears, oh, the tears. Okay, I didn't see a lot of tears, but nevertheless. Lots of demonstrative weeping and very prominent and 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 just 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 crying just grief like you never imagined it. And I thought, my goodness, was, did we say that this man was a dictator? Because how often do you see 
people cry like that over a dictator, especially in a year when so many of them had been deposed. And I just thought, my goodness, you know, the U.S. has had its issues with North Korea, but apparently, apparently this president took care of his people because look at how sad they are. Look at how distraught they are over his death. My goodness. There must be something to admire about this man, and I'm sure we're going to hear about it pretty soon. Well, that's what I thought. Um, later that afternoon, I started hearing stories about how the Koreans were actually expected to cry. I heard that when their previous leader died, Kim Jong-il's dad, the people who were caught dry-eyed were rounded up and punished. Now, I didn't quite get a sense for what the punishment was because I thought, well, what is the punishment for not crying for your leader? But apparently it was severe enough that the suspicion was that all of this teary-eyed and all of this drama over his, his, uh, this particular leader's death was because nobody wanted to be caught not crying, and not being demonstratively upset and unhappy about their leader's demise. Now this, I have to say, um, that made me laugh because I thought, seriously, really? And I wasn't quite sure if I should believe it because I thought, well, you know, maybe that's just the propaganda the West wants us to believe, and maybe he was really a good guy after all. So for the rest of the day, I paid really close attention to the criers, and here's what I noticed. I noticed that the people who were closest to the cameras always seemed to be the ones crying the most. They were also the ones who seemed to be crying the most dramatically. Although there was much crying, there was also much covering of the eyes and the faces. Now, maybe that's a cultural thing. Maybe you're supposed to cover your face and your eyes when you cry. But I I did notice that I didn't see a lot of actual tears. Some of those citizens did cry tears, but I was a little bit suspicious of the ones who just flailed and wailed and made sure you actually couldn't see their faces. And then I thought the other thing that I thought was kind of suspicious was the, the physical demonstrativeness of all of this crying. Because I thought, you know, I've been to funerals, and I've been to funerals of my close relatives. I lost my father a couple of years ago. And I don't remember seeing a whole lot of people flail and wail and and just, oh, my goodness, wah! I don't remember a lot of that. There is grieving and there is sadness and there is sullenness, but the, you know, throw yourself around, flail your arms, you know, you don't see a lot of that even with someone who is very close to you. So that, I thought, was kind of suspicious. Then there were, and I also remember seeing uh, one piece of footage that was repeatedly shown uh, this one particular evening where there were a lot of, men and women, Korean men and women dressed in black. They were all sitting in what appeared to be a church-like structure because they were all sitting in these pews. And 
the people in the two front rows, again, closest to the camera, were doing most of the crying and the remonstrations while the folks in the rows behind them just mostly sat sat and looked sad and blue. And I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. Then there were the interviews with the Koreans in the diaspora, those who had left Korea and were living in various countries, including the U.S. Many of them were actually happy that their fearless leader was gone, and their big concern was that they were mostly just worried about the safety of their uh, loved ones at home. All that to say that, um, you know, I guess you can't believe everything that you see, unless you should be wondering what it was that this man did that made his popularity so dubious. According to a 2004 Human Rights Watch report, he led one of the most repressive governments in the world. The United States and South Korean officials claimed that he had as many as 200,000 political prisoners, and there was no such thing as freedom of religion, freedom of the press, or equal education in North Korea. Kim Jong-il's government reportedly controlled just about every aspect of political, social, and economic life. Just in October, an international coalition of numerous human rights organizations issued a letter, and you can actually find a link to the letter after the show airs. You can go on to uh, you can go online to thespeedwayshow.com and check it out. But they wrote this letter. Um, to Kim Jong-il, imploring him to stop human rights violations in his country. So who knows? You know, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Maybe he did some good things because most of the time you find that there is some good that even the worst dictators manage to do. And there are some things that they do that engender um, and, and, and promote their popularity among certain factions of people, even if they're small factions. But anyway, that is the story of Kim Jong-il. So what I wanted to leave you with today was the most fun event of 2011, and that was the most talked-about wedding that we saw last year. You remember which wedding that was. There are actually a lot of celebrity weddings, but... The one that was most prominent and most interesting and that people got most excited about was, of course, the royal wedding. The wedding between the now uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Princess Catherine and Prince William. You probably saw Kate's gorgeous dress. But did you know that the royal couple asked guests and the public to send donations to their Royal Wedding Charitable Gift Fund so they could donate to the 26 charities that they have chosen. Isn't that nice? In all, uh, according to one UK magazine, they raised one million, over £1 million. Pounds. And uh, to be exact, it was £1,058,367. They raised these from guests and events from the wedding, and in addition, members of the public were also encouraged to send money directly to the charities. 
Every aspect of this wedding captured our attention and imagination, didn't it? Magazines dedicated inordinate amounts of space, and websites were created just to pour over the details, every detail. The wedding location, the guests, the music at the wedding, the pre-dawn preparations, which were the charities that were selected by the royal couple. And, of course, that dress. Oh, my, what a gorgeous dress. Because the U.S. is several hours behind the U.K., people here got up at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning to watch the wedding. They collected their friends and their children. They dressed up to get together to watch the royal wedding in style. Little girls all over the world dreamed of what it must be like to marry a real Prince Charming. Wow. And, you know, in the middle of a global economic downturn, this wedding really gave all of us a chance to escape the gloomy reports and dream, if only for a moment, and to hope and wish the best for a beautiful young couple starting their lives out together. It was truly a beautiful thing. And um, that, for me, was, was a great deal of fun. I actually got a kick out of listening to the uh, radio talk shows as I was driving around, going to work and on my way, and uh, listening to people call in and talk about what they did. And uh, I might have done the same thing, were it not for the fact that this radio show had not launched by then. But um, people called and they talked about where they were and where they went and how they celebrated and what they wore. It was a big deal. And uh, now, since then, as you probably know, uh, Princess Catherine has been such a fashion trendsetter since her wedding. And um, a lot of the clothes that you see her wearing sell out as soon as people see her wearing them. And uh, everybody wants to look like a princess. And it really is a tribute. I don't think it's so much about the clothes, because there are lots of celebrities that don't have that impact. But I think it's also a testament to the world that loves a good, clean-cut, beautiful, loving couple. And um, we want to emulate that which is good, that which is pure, that which is lovely. We, we all gravitate to the light that we see in others around us. And with that, that brings us to the now happy conclusion of our show on that happy note. Thank you for listening to the Speedway Show today. I will also end by wishing I have a couple of family members who had birthdays. My mom turned, I won't tell you how old, and I won't tell you how young, but she had her birthday on New Year's Day. She was a New Year's Day baby. Happy birthday, Mama. And uh, my Uncle Steve, who is my mother's eldest brother, also had his birthday earlier on this month. He had his birthday on the 6th of, ja uh, of January. Happy birthday, Sekuru Steve. And um, I would sing happy birthday were it not for the fact that I cannot sing. And uh, for all those of you who had January birthdays, happy birthday to all of you. Thank you for tuning in. 
You can check out the content for this show on the website. We're going to see if we can find some fun statistics for you, like the top five movies of 2011. The um, um, Oh, let's see. Maybe we'll uh, see if we can find some other things like that that you might like and check out. And uh, some clips from some of the stories we talked about today. But uh, tune in for future shows this year. We've got some changes to our format. The new shows are still going to launch on Sundays, but you'll be able to listen to them at different times of the day, not just 8 o'clock. And uh, if I have my way, you'll be able to hear them before 8 o'clock in the evening on Sundays. So keep an eye out for that. This year, we are also going to give you the ability to listen to the shows on your mobile devices. We've had questions and queries about that. And uh, we're also going to see if we can increase the number of um, of um, search, uh, of um, what do you call those? Um, search, no. Is it search engines? No. Internet browsers, that's the word I was looking for. Internet browsers that um, uh, this uh, website is formatted for because right now, You can use it on uh, Internet Explorer. You can use it on Firefox. You can use it on Safari. Um, Last year saw the launch of Google Chrome, and I'm actually a Google Chrome user, and um, I have some trouble getting my RSS feed to work sometimes. So uh, look out for some upgrades and some new and interesting things that we're going to be doing this year. I'm working on a co-host for some of the shows, so I'm hoping that that comes together. And uh, if all goes well, we're going to have an engaging and wonderful new year. So thank you again for uh, joining me today on the Speedway Show. Tell your friends, tell your buddies. If you want to have an interview, if you've got something to say, let us know, and we will have you on the show. Here's hoping your new year is off to a phenomenal start and that the new year brings you all the blessings your hands and hearts can hold. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Until next time, live well, live fully, and love deeply.